Our topic today is retail investors and the future of equities markets. We just finished a fireside chat with SEC Commissioner Elad Roisman, which covered a wide variety of topics, including some like gamification that we're going to be talking about on this panel about retail market access. I'm very excited to have this introduce this panel today. I encourage you to join the conversation with hashtag CatoEcon and submit questions to the panel on whatever form you're using to live stream this event right now. Um, and if you've missed any of our previous programming, including the fireside chat with Commissioner Roisman or our, or our panel on market structure, we'll be posting videos of those to our events, our event page shortly. So please check them out. But now the market access panel which will be moderated by Chris Matthews, who is a reporter at MarketWatch, who specializes in financial policy, the economy, and markets. He's previously worked for Time, Fortune Magazine, and Axios. Chris has a master's degree in journalism and economic reporting from New York University and a bachelor's degree from George Washington University. Chris's coverage in this space is comprehensive, and I can personally attest that he asks tough questions. So I'm excited to see him moderate this panel. Let's turn to Chris for the market access panel. Thanks so much, Jennifer, for that uh, introduction. It's it's a real pleasure to moderate um, this panel. It should be a fascinating discussion. Technology has really supercharged the evolution of, of retail uh, investing. And there's so many novel questions that the industry and regulators have to answer. And so I'm pleased to introduce our, our panel. We have. Uh, Jill Fish, who is the Saul A. Fox Distinguished Professor of Business Law and co-director of the Institute for Law and Economics at the University of Pennsylvania Carey School of Law. And we, we also have Michael Pilwar, Executive Director uh, for the Center for Financial Markets at the Milken Institute, and Steve Sosnick, who is a Chief Strategist at Interactive Brokers. So, so welcome all. Um, so first, I, you know, I want, I want to give you guys some opportunity to kind of go through what you think are the most important issues, you know, facing uh, regulators in the industry today. Um, so why don't we start uh, with Michael? Sure. Thanks, Chris. And thanks, Jennifer, for uh, putting on such a wonderful, wonderful conference. Um, you know, just to, just a brief overview, right? So for retail investors um, who want to invest in public companies, it's never been better. Uh, competition among brokers has led to literally zero commission trading. Uh, competition among market centers like exchanges, alternative trading systems and, and market makers has led to the best market quality ever. Spreads are tight. Um, liquidity is good and execution speeds uh, are really, really fast. Um, at, investors can open you know, really low balance accounts. Um, they can invest in fractional shares. Um, you know, you've got some, you know, companies like Amazon whose stock price is $3,500, right? So the average investor wants to put in maybe a hundred bucks or something uh, can invest in those types of things. If investors want to invest indirectly in the stock market, they can invest in uh, mutual funds or exchange traded funds and competition there uh, has led to the lowest fees and expenses uh, in history. Um, we've seen uh, retail investor participation increase over the last, uh, say, 20 years. Uh, across all households and all income levels. Uh, now, of course, low income households uh, have less participation, but they've actually been uh, increasing uh, their participation rates um, uh, on, on a relative basis uh, much quicker uh, than other households. 
Uh, I guess if there's, you know, a, a place where, where things could be done would be better access to um, uh, retirement savings accounts. We still see low income households lag behind in, in, in formation of IRAs uh, and 401ks. But um, let me stop there and, and let my fellow panelists uh, give their perspectives. Great. Jill, do you want to take it from there? Yeah, so um, I agree with everything that Mike said. And um, listening to, it's, it's, it's a great pleasure to be here. Uh, it was a pleasure to listen to the earlier panels uh, this morning. Um, listening to that discussion and to Commissioner Roisman as well, um, it, it struck me that there are really two fundamental questions that we have to keep in mind when we talk about retail investors in the market. One, is it good for retail investors to participate in the markets? And two, is it good for the markets to have retail investors participate? And fundamentally, my answer to both of those questions is yes. And I'm hoping to sort of explain more as we get into the questions, but just a couple of things to keep in mind. As Mike said, the capital markets, capital market participation has been a key to wealth creation in this country. That's been true historically, that continues to be true today. So we look, for example, at what the stock market's done over the last couple of years. If you've been invested in the stock market, you've had the opportunity to grow your wealth in a way that other people, non-investors, have missed out on. Um, retail participation today includes younger, and more diverse investors and newer investors than ever before, right? We see an expansion, not just in terms of numbers, but in who's investing. I think that's uh, tremendously valuable. And I think that participating in the capital markets gives investors access to information and kind of a stake in US businesses in a way that's good for both investors and the underlying businesses. Um, with respect to, is it good for the markets? What we've seen over the last 50 years is a growing institutionalization in the capital markets, right? A few large asset management companies control a huge amount of investing power and voting power. And retail investment, it seems to me, offers a sort of valuable safeguard against giving those asset managers too much power over American businesses. It also gives businesses some insight into what the ordinary citizen thinks. And I think that's really valuable for holding businesses accountable, something that's a real social challenge today. So I've already talked too much, so I will stop and uh, um, pass the torch. Great points, uh, Jill. Uh, Steve, do you wanna take it from there? Sure, um, I, I largely agree with uh, the comments my, my colleagues have made. Um, I, I will push back a little bit about the quality of market making. I spent the bulk of my career as a market maker and I'll say we kind of um, hit a wall there and, and, and have sort of in some ways flipped the other way in terms of, uh, of availability of market making resources. But in general, that's something that, that individual investors will not see. It's very much behind the scenes. Um, the old adage is if you want more of something, make it free. And as an industry, we've made it free. And, and I realize I'm speaking as an industry participant if, if the backdrop hasn't already clued that in. Um, and you know, we, we're seeing the type of um, quantum leap in investing in investing in individual investor interest. We've, we really haven't seen something like this since, let's say the late 90s when with the advent of web-based trading, which brought down fees, raised accessibility, um, it also brought on a bit of an excess at the end, and we can debate whether we're seeing one now or not. Um, but I, I firmly agree um, that seeing more in individual investors as we are seeing now 
is a good thing for the industry and for the public. Um, and it's just really managing, um, teaching people how to do this better um, and, how to, and how to use the resources at their disposal um, so that they're used for investment and, and, and productivity. Great, great. These are all uh, wonderful points and a, a great launching off point for, for my questions. I think, you know, the, the day in some ways is, is so-called gamification. Uh, the SEC is, is referring to it as digital engagement practices. But basically, it's this idea, and this is not just limited to, to investing, but that in our daily lives, people are interacting more with algorithms and computer programs and, and application interfaces than they are with real humans. And that, that raises some questions about, okay, so how, how should regulators approach regulating these interfaces, which are kind of replacing our interactions with human beings? Um, and I think what the SEC right now, when they put out you know, a, a request for comment, well, you know, one of the questions they, they are asking is, is when do these practices sort of spill over into investment advice? If, if a digital engagement practice is created to optimize revenue, or is it going to influence the way customers interact um, with, with the platform? Um, and so, Mike, let me throw this over to you. How should regulators approach this question? Is this an important question to be asking right now? Yeah, no, that's absolutely the right question. Uh, and Chairman Gensler had signaled that that's what they were going to start looking at is whether or not any of these, these gamification features or the behavioral prompts um, to your point, bleed over into investment advice or in the case of broker-dealers, recommendations. And the reason why that's important from a regulatory perspective is, you know, the SEC right now has a, what's called a best interest standard for brokers. And what that means is when brokers are providing investment advice or recommendations, they have to do so in the best interest of the client, not necessarily in the best interest uh, of the broker. So that's what the, the SEC has put out, their request for comment. Uh, on these, on you know, on the different behavioral prompts or gamification features uh, that are there, and you know, my sense is it's going to be a facts and circumstances type um, decision from the SEC on this. But they're going to they're going to you know at some point provide some guidance in terms of um, you know features that that are likely are or likely aren't uh, you know sort of principles of, of for those types of things. And so um, you know, look to them to, to providing some guidance um, to some to the brokers based upon uh, the feedback that they get. And, and Steve, let, let me get your take on this. Do you think? How do you think the industry is thinking about these questions? Uh, obviously, regulators are are very keyed in on it. How, how does industry approach it? Well, as an industry, we always sort of like a, a light touch on regulation, of course. And and I do I do want to make sure you know. But as an industry, we have to make sure that um, that some of the practices in terms of know your customer, fiduciary standards, etc., um, are properly applied when you really don't know your customer in the same way you do and and that you don't have the same um, interactions that you had before with your customer and in terms of the gamification i do understand that there there i i don't want to sound paternalistic here it's not my goal but you, you do have a lot of newer investors who grew up with video games and in in many in many cases we we are starting to see some overlap in that behavior. And, and that I think is where the SEC is trying to draw the line. And I think as an industry, many of us are as well, is where does, you know, where does trading and aggressive trading begin? Um, where does it flip over into something morphing into gambling or, or video gaming? 
Um, and I think that that is a really, really tough line to draw. Um, and we definitely saw, uh, I, I've attributed a lot of the retail interest that we saw in stock markets um, to the fact that we had basically no sports gambling at that point, no spectator sports and the availability uh, you know, and, and then money flowing into people's account, people's bank accounts and saying, oh, this is this is something fun and interesting to do to do while I don't really have a lot of other alternatives. Um, again, this is not I, I, I'm really trying very hard to, to not sound like grandpa saying this is a bad thing, but it's but there's definitely there has been that overlap in terms of a lot of um, in terms of a lot of new investors um, that we've seen. Yeah, I mean, really uh, interesting points. You know, especially the nature of of new retail interest. What exactly is is it? Uh, some of these traders, I think, you know, this dovetails a bit with the idea of how social media has impacted um, investing. Um, you see, all sort. I mean, you, we, we sort of have the meme stock phenomenon that seems to be really motivated by companies that have become popular on social media. And uh, they, they're, they're sort of popular because they're popular and, and maybe not so much because of what is flowing to the bottom line. Um, Jill, I don't know if you have any thoughts on, on how social media has impacted investing. You talked about how retail market, that stock markets benefit from retail investing and vice versa. Um, how do you think about this, this phenomenon of social media investing that may not be driven by fundamentals, but maybe some other factors? Well, I've been teaching law and securities regulation in particular for more than 30 years. And this reminds me a little bit of what we said years ago about the internet. You know, people really can't get information from the internet. You know, that's really scary. Anyone can put something on the internet. That's not the way you should do research. And of course, we feel quite differently about that today. And so I think social media is kind of the same thing. Um, right. There's a sort of broad based use of social media to get all kinds of information. Why shouldn't investing information be some of that? And obviously it's a process, right? This is, you know, it's not going to emerge perfect and fully formed. And we've got risks of misuse. We've got risks associated with the anonymity of social media. We've got the potential for manipulation. But I don't think we um, condemn the forum because of those risks. I think we think about how to, how, to, uh, how to install safeguards, how to make things operate uh, in a more reliable manner. Great, Mike, do you wanna jump in there? Sure, I mean, I, I agree with everything Jill said, right? It's, you know, there's no way you can sort of stop this. And in, in the social media, you know, the, the cost of, you know, comparing information and getting, getting, gathering information is essentially zero now, right? So. Um, you know, Steve's point, you know, if you, if you want more of something, make it free. Well, the cost of communicating and, and actually coordinating uh, has gone way up. And it's actually if you think about, you know, the meme stock trading and some of the other things, we, we have a situation in the United States that we have not had uh, for a long time where, you know, packs of retail investors can actually move prices. Right. So uh, in my former role as a regulator and a former academic, you know, we used to refer to um, retail traders as quote unquote noise traders, right? They were just noise in the market. Their individual trades tended to be small. Um, they, they, they tended to be on both sides of the market, buys and sells and cancel each other out. And they were just sort of noise and, you know, no real signal from that. 
But now we're seeing that, you know, if retail investors can get together, start coordinating some of their trading, they can um, they can actually move the markets. And so that is presenting some interesting um, opportunities and challenges for academics who think about uh, the markets, the regulators who are you know making sure that they're fair, orderly and efficient. Um, and then also institutional investors and their trading strategies uh, in this new in this. And there's you know, there's no way we're going back from this uh, to, to Jill's point. Steve, do you have any, any thoughts on on this area? Yes. Um, you know, I, 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 I like Jill's analogy to sort of the early days of the Internet because, you know, really, you know, Reddit has replaced the Yahoo chat room of, of 1998. And, and that's OK. But, you know, and I think if the meme stock phenomenon and social media has taught us anything is is reminded us that, you know, thousands of ants moving together can move a very big log. And I think we've seen that in terms of, of individual stocks and, uh, you know, the, the meme stock, the meme stock phenomenon, you know, being the, the the prime example of that. But we do have to start to, to consider is, you know, at what point does at what point does a lot of people operating independently, does it does it turn over into collusion? And also, and I'm certainly not qualified to, to, to consider that point. Um, and the second one that I would raise um, would be, um, there's sort of a there's sort of a different standard that industry licensed industry practitioners have vis-a-vis vis-a-vis um, vis an individual. You know, I can't go on I can't go on social media, certainly not under my own name, and say any you know make some of the wildly outlandish claims that various people do. Um, but the but then the you know the the but you know somebody under the concept of anonymity who's got a big social media following can say pretty much anything. So there are there are things that we're going to have to reckon with, and I don't find these um, very easy questions to to resolve. And quite frankly, I you know I'm glad I'm not the guy who's got to do it because it's very it's very very difficult. Uh, I'll defer to someone like Jill, who's <laughs> Jill or Mike, who've, who've had much more experience in this regard. Yeah, I mean these are are very complicated questions, and the impact of social media is not limited to to retail markets. It's certainly something that all aspects of society are kind of wrangling with um you know speaking of social media i want to encourage our, our audience members to submit their their questions um we have one here uh, herbert on, on slido asks and and this is i think an interesting sort of gets at kind of uh how far we've come uh in terms of retail trading power but he he, he wants to know how retail investors can participate in ipos uh before they are typically hitting the retail market. I mean, this this used to be a case where uh, retail traders getting access to IPOs was not something that was even really considered a possibility. Uh, you had uh, Robinhood in its recent um, IPO sort of try to, to bridge that gap and, and give access to, to its customers. Um, so, uh, you know, maybe Steve, you can, you can tackle this one. There, there, there's real, um, there is a feeling out there that, that that things maybe are tilted towards the big guys, uh, you know, and maybe the the IPO issue is, is one example. Uh, do you have any thoughts there? Well, first of all, I, I, I'm, I'm assuming he means on the IPO date, you know, having it on the IPO date, not in terms of uh, participating in the private markets, uh, you know, which which does go on. But I'm, I'm not really going to speak to that because that's really kind of outside my, my purview. Um, there are ways to to invest in uh, to make investments in private companies in a semi-public way to do it. 
Um, but I, I'm going to just sort of leave it for someone to do their own research on that one. What we are seeing now is, is investment firms are democratizing the IPO allocation process. When I started in the business, it was virtually impossible to participate in an IPO if you were a, a small retail customer, or if you did get to participate in that IPO, that meant that every that meant that all the better customers of all the firms in the syndicate didn't want it to the point where it got to you and you really didn't want to have that allocation. So um, I think this is a good thing now that this is becoming more democratized, especially through direct listings. Um, and, you know, there are various brokerage firms that offer this facility. And, um, uh, you know, I suggest if that's of interest to you, you, you explore which ones allow that. Great. Uh, Jill, do you have any thoughts on this topic? Yeah. So, um, this came up in the morning panel too the idea that retail investors are disadvantaged because they can't participate in the market on the same terms as uh, securities professionals and big institutional investors and that's always been the case and that will always be the case right retail investors um just because they don't have as much money to invest um are not going to be uh have the same opportunities and are not going to have access to the same terms but we do see some of the developments trying to bridge that gap. And there's a cost to that. So Robinhood's experimented not just in its own IPO, but with giving its customers access uh, directly in the IPOs. IPOs, frankly, are a little bit uh, less stable if they've got a heavy component of retail participation. We saw that in Robinhood's IPO. This is something we have to worry about. Another example of that access is SPACs. Right? Retail investors are seeking to access private companies through SPACs. Uh, downside associated with that as well. And we've seen a lot of SPACs um, you know, blow up and retail investors suffer substantial losses. But what's interesting about the sort of retail investor boom, the meme stocks and all of that, is that's not either of those cases. These are traditional, these are listed public companies, right? These are the most heavily regulated companies in terms of investor protection and disclosure and the like. And we nonetheless worry, we nonetheless hear paternalistically, gee, it's dangerous for retail investors to buy those companies. So it's kind of ironic in a way. Mike, do you have any uh, thoughts? Yeah, just uh, on the IPO piece. I mean, I think I think Jill hit it exactly right. That institutional investors um, are always going to have an advantage there, and they they play a, a very important role with when 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 companies go public. Right, there's what's called the book building process, where the underwriter goes out and they want to seek to find out what should the share price be, what sort of market reaction they're going to get, and so in return for providing that information and, and, and those things, you know, that's how they, they sort of get those allocations. And, you know, Jill mentioned, you know, Robinhood kind of had their thing. I remember, you know, famously years ago, Boston Beer, right? Sam Adams Beer Company, right? They had a little thing on their, on their case of beer. You could, you know, on the cardboard, you could turn it in and get like something like 33 shares or something like that uh, at the IPO price. And, and you see that every once in a while. And then, you know, you've got, there was, you know, I remember in the early 2000s, there was, I think it was Hambrick and Quist had these, you know, these these auction mechanisms for going public that was sort of all the rage for a while. But, you know, the traditional sort of book building process seems to be the most stable way of doing it. And the institutions, you know, play an important role in that process. So, um, you know, yeah, every once in a while, we're going to get some, you know, novel things for companies to try to get their name out there to, to some folks. But I think, the traditional method is going to be is the one that survived and will continue to survive. Mm -hmm. um, we have another audience question here that I think is relevant, given we, we've made some references to 
to the late 90s and, and how that sort of ushered in a, a new golden age of retail investing maybe didn't turn out so well for some folks after the dot-com dot com crash. So do we, um, Jeb on, on Slido is asking, is there any kind of lessons that we can learn from what happened in the late 90s, um, either for regulators or for retail investors? Uh, any parallels that, that can be drawn in lessons uh, from history? Um, I don't know, Steve, do you want to tackle that one? Um, yeah, sure. I mean, I, I think, you know, what's the, what's the phrase? You know, history doesn't always repeat, but it often rhymes. And I think that there are always lessons to be gained from um, from following, you know, previous market examples. Um, no one wants to see people lose money, but it does happen in the markets. And we try to avoid it. And as a brokerage firm, we really would rather not set up our customers to be in a position to lose money. But one of the things that I've always referred to, to try to educate people on is at some level, trading and investment losses are tuition. This is how people learn their lessons. And, you know, going, it, unfortunately, like going to a high-end school, it can be a very expensive tuition. Um, but I think these are lessons that people learn. And, 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 and unless they are absolutely duped um, or, or taken in by something illegal, this is a normal functioning feature of markets. And so I think that what we need to, what I think investors need to do is take advantage of, of the lessons of history, see what happened then, see what parallels you can draw then to now and how they may be affecting things and, and make your decisions from there. And from a regulatory point of view, um, I'll leave that again to more to, to Jill and to Mike, but you know, I think there's always sort of a regulatory uh, move to clean up the last mess, you know, in a regulatory sense. And I think we want to, um, you know, I think we did we did clean up from that mess then, and we'll we'll have new messes to find if, if this doesn't end all that, you know, if this market uh, comes to a, a nastier end. Um, Mike, you're you're our former former regulator on the panel. Do you want to weigh in on that that question? Sure. I mean, I mean, you know, to Steve's point, right, everybody sort of focus on, quote, unquote, the messes, right? So you think back to, um, you know, the NASDAQ sort of the tech dot com bubble in early 2000s or even the global financial crisis of 2008, 2009. But what we focus on the back end of that, right? So, you know, the dot com, you know, it was a lot of companies like pets.com that went away. But then right after that, we had a whole new series of, of companies that became incredibly successful. So, you know, Google IPO'd, I think, in 2004, right? Everybody said, oh, the tech boom is, is done, but they started a new one. You know, we had the global financial crisis and we saw, you know, bailouts of banks and all kinds of other things. And on the back end of that, we not only had companies, but an entire new industry, fintech, came out. You know, we have a, a ton of new entrepreneurs in that space that are doing some really cool things. Um, that that are and now these companies have been going public. And so I think, you know, in, in the wake of, you know, last year's, you know, shutdown of the economy, you know, because of the pandemic, you know, there's, you know, to Steve's point, people kind of got bored and could trade and stuff, but they're starting to look for all right, what are going to be the next companies of the future that they can bet on that are going to come out of this last crisis that we had. And so, you know, there's some really exciting uh, uh, companies in the fintech space or the biotech space or some of the other ones that that people can invest in. And so, you know, yeah, we can focus on the losses that come from those things, but there's also the potential that there's going to be some long-term winners come from these situations too. Yeah, that's a great, great point. Jill, do you have any thoughts? Yeah, just um, on the question, how do we protect people? Yes, we. if you invest in the capital markets, you risk losing money. 
And that's true whether you invest in regular stocks, whether you invest in mutual funds, whether you invest in bonds or bond funds, right? There's a risk of losing money. But I think we have to distinguish the risk of losing money from the risk of uh, sort of uh, making uh, uh, speculative or unwise trades that take you down financially, right? So some loss of money can be associated, as Steve said, with a learning process. Some loss of money can be associated with, well, I thought this was a good company. It's not a fraud. It turns out that its, you know, its business plan didn't work. Well, you know, yeah, you provide capital to a bunch of innovative companies. Some of them aren't going to make it. Right. And so when we think about, well, gee, you know, investors are being sort of uh, led around by the nose with confetti and gamification and so forth. Right. It's not those type of risks that, you know, confetti doesn't make you invest in bad companies. Um, the uh, harm, you know, how do we protect investors? It goes back, I think, to something Steve said at the beginning. Right. Don't invest more money than you can afford to lose. Um, don't invest using complex trading strategies like options that you don't understand. Don't borrow a lot of money so that you're highly leveraged if you're inexperienced, if you don't know what you're doing. Those are pretty simple rules. And I think, you know, sort of making those rules clear and requiring brokers to, you know, make sure that those rules are being enforced in the way they vet their customers and the way they vet their customers' trading strategies goes a long way to investor protection without paternalism. Yeah, and you, you raised the point of the of complex um, investment strategies. We, we've seen a real growth in interest in trading and things like options. If you look at some of the financial disclosures, we can see that, that um, these online brokers a lot of times are making a lot more money selling options than they are selling S&P 500 stocks. Um, so what do regulators have a role here, uh, given that there's this explosion of information on the Internet? It's a lot easier just to get on a trading platform and trade options, even if you might not know exactly how that works. Uh, what is the role of regulation there? Mike, do you want to tackle that? Sure. I mean, there's there's a number of different roles, right? So so on the regulatory side, right, the, the we've talked about the brokers have a best interest standard and, and Jill was talking about, you know, communicating um, certain, you know, things to their to their customers and that sort of thing. You know, the SEC also has uh, an investor education uh, mandate, um, you know, the Office of Investor Education and Advocacy and trying to reach people um, to give them just these basic pieces of information or to look for red flags. Uh, and those sorts of things. And then on the enforcement side, right, is when they do see violations of the federal securities laws to actually go through and bring, you know, enforcement cases uh, against them. I mean, one of the one of the creative ways that the SEC on the on the education side uh, has done it is, is every once in a while they will put out uh, a fake investment opportunity on the Web. Um, they did it uh, did, during I remember in the early 2000s, there was one it was a biohazard thing. It was right after September 11th and, and, and some of the, the anthrax scares and stuff. And it was a company that that they touted on there. And, and when you click on it, it's like, you know, give your social security number, click on this or whatever. And then the SEC said, oh, you could have been scammed. And they did it more recently with um, I think it was on uh, an ICO um, initial coin offering, Howie coin they did. So, you know, creative ways to try to get to the people who would otherwise be duped by some of these things. And, and I think that's a very appropriate and, and, a, and a good and fun role for the SEC to do. Uh, Steve, you're no uh, stranger to the options. <laughs> yeah, I, 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 I got to confess, I was an options market maker for over 20 years. So, so this one, I, I think I kind of get. 
Um, one of the things that I that I noticed, you know, over the you know as I drew the illusion to gambling before, um, the payoffs in options are very similar, um, at least superficially, to those of gambling. You you make you put a, an initial outlay out, um, which is the premium for whatever the option you purchase. I'm assuming you're a buyer. If you purchase an option, you lay out a premium and you have um, essentially a leveraged bet, you know, odd, just like you would if you, you know, made a, a bet with odds. Um, they may not understand the odds that are implicit in that, but let me put skipping ahead. You make a bet that's a fixed amount of money and then you have a certain amount of uh, you have a leveraged payout at a fixed at a fixed date that is really close to 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 gambling and. and gambling in terms of in terms of the payout structure not in terms of not in terms of the 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 actual event and what it means is like anything else there are gamblers who gamble um you know socially uh, let's call it there you know who who gamble who understand that they have money that they they have a fixed outlay and they can lose it um and and they go on about their business there's some entertainment value to it among other gamblers um but, you know, and so using options as a speculative tool versus as a hedging tool are very, very different things. We've found that retail investors at least start by using options as a speculative tool. And the one thing I'll actually argue on behalf of options are if you lose money, it's very easy to lose money in options. Most most buyers do. This is a this is a fact. Um, but what happens is you you lay out a fixed amount of money and that's it. You're done. So. Is it better to lose money slowly? Well, yeah, probably because unless you know you're basically limited to how much you can lose, and and there's um you know going back to that tuition argument, you will eventually learn that maybe making all these um you know high levered bets isn't the best way to go about it. Now I will say that a lot of people learned over the last few years that over the last year or so that making some of these highly levered bets can be incredibly lucrative, um, but this is something that people will learn. Um, so in and of themselves, um, you know, I, I find that the writing of options is, is far more dangerous. But that's usually not uh, naked options. Writing is usually not done um, by individual investors who, who don't have a lot of experience in that regard. There are plenty of individual investors who do it, uh, but they tend to be more experienced. Uh, Jill, do you have any thoughts? Do you think it's too easy for folks to go out there and trade options? Should we have more rules or is this just another thing that folks can learn from uh, as they go? Well, again, I, I think Steve made a good point. Um, it's important to distinguish between writing option positions and trading or buying options. And, you know, to the extent that buying options is a bet, and investors lose that bet more often than not, uh, they're gonna be discouraged from engaging in the process. But I also think, um, and this goes back to something that Steve said earlier, right? There's this line or this, this spectrum between investing and gambling. And you know, I don't think it's a binary either or. I think a lot of people are somewhere along that spectrum. And frankly, I think over time they can move. So what somebody learns in something that they view as speculation and kind of a fun thing to do because they can't go to Las Vegas may influence the way they think about their 401k plan 
and may influence the way they engage, not just as an investor, but also as a voting shareholder, right? So they're, they're the spillover effects that you see. And I think that, you know, sort of a year into this, it's really very early to predict the upside, the potential value of this kind of engagement. And if losing money on a couple of bets is a way to sort of hook people in and get people to pay attention to the capital markets, you know, again, you know, we have to sort of balance that against the cost of losing that money. You know, at the center of this issue is the concept of investor education, which is obviously a hugely important thing. If we could just make everybody 20% smarter, then then maybe a lot of these issues wouldn't be out there. Um, so, so what what is what are some of the things? What what? How should we be thinking about investor education? What can it uh, what can it accomplish? What are its shortcomings? And and are there promising? Um, developments in new technology that might make um, um, investor education easier. I'll, I'll take. I'll go back to you again, Jill, on this one. So um, it's funny because I've been writing about financial literacy and investor education for years, and every time I present present my work at an academic conference. Um, my fellow law professors or business school professors say, oh, I don't want to pay attention to that. That's boring. You're telling me I should look more carefully into what's in my 401k plan. You know, I set, I, 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 uh, set it up. Uh, I'll look at it when I'm ready to retire. In between, I'm not really interested. You want me to click through and get information on fees, expense ratios, things like that. You know, I've got, I've got other things to do. There's, uh, you know, uh, uh, the NFL season starts tonight. I got to pay attention to that. So, you know, I think that the idea of it being gamified, I think the idea of people looking for information on sources like social media that they already find fun and engaging, I think the idea of people sharing stories with other, what they view as ordinary people, not sort of seeing the barriers of going to a professional money manager to get this information. I think all of that is really promising. And again, I think that's a place where the SEC can be not just monitoring what's going on, but actually engaged. Um, you know, um, uh, we were talking uh, a few minutes ago about the SEC putting things on its website. Um, but how many people go and look at the SEC website versus going to uh, Reddit or, um, you know, other TikTok? So, you know, this could be an area where the SEC is actually affirmatively out there engaging in the space that at least a big portion of this demographic is paying attention to. Mike, do you have any, any thoughts on that? Yeah, no, I agree. This is one where the SEC can, it needs to be a lot more creative. Um, one of the things that the SEC started noticing was that there's, you know, a lot of fraud with, you know, new investors uh, occurred in, there's a lot of affinity fraud and it occurred in place in, with, with investors who maybe English is not their first language. So the SEC has been very good on social media and other places about putting out investor education, not just in English, but in Spanish and Chinese and other languages too. I mean, you need to meet people where they are, right? Um, you know, young people don't go to websites anymore, right? It's like, you know, like Jill said, TikTok or something like that. So, you know, it's 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 incumbent upon them to do that. And then also gamify, make it fun uh, on these things, right? And 
and you know, I think you know it's been said multiple times here. Right? The best education is for someone to open up an account and you know lose a little bit of money here and there. You know, it's amazing how much that focuses the mind. Then it's not theoretical. It's not textbook. It's like it's really happening to me. I have skin in the game on this. We'd want to make sure people don't lose you know all of their money, but you know, it's, it's this is a way to sort of focus it. Right back when I was teaching in academia. You know, students would kind of get bored of, you know, lecturing of, you know, this is how power of diversification and this other stuff. But, you know, we would run these simulations where they would get a fake account of, you know, pretend $100,000 and invest it over the course of the semester. And it was amazing how many of the students there who were not otherwise engaged in the class got really got engaged um, once they, you know, even that was just, you know, fake money. But there's a little bit of a competition involved in that. Um, and, and how many of them said that, that that changed their outlook on what finance, they used to think finance was boring, but you know, they could, even if they lost money or, or, if, they, or if they won the thing, they, they, they thought it was a really fun way to do that. Yeah, I think that uh, individual stock investing is always a little bit more exciting than, than, uh, than index investing. Um, Steve, do you have any thoughts on, on this area of investor education? Uh, yes, I mean, please. Um, you know, I, I, I've spent a lot more of my time and effort since I've stopped being a full-time trader to, to educating. And the, the problem is, and Jill hit on it, um, you know, she's, she, she lost a room full of, of law, law school and business school professors who find regulation too dull. How about a bunch of, uh, you know, of, of millennials being lectured to by a bunch of boomers in suits? They, that's not what they want to hear. Um, and as much as I've done work with, with various exchanges and, and OIC and some of the others, um, I'm just, I'm still, I'm still their dad talking to them in a sport jacket, even if I take the tie off. Um, and that's really, you know, that, that I, I love Mike's point about, is there a way to gamify the education? Because that's the thing to make it exciting. The problem is, I, I do think there's a, a real hunger for education out there. The problem is, and I, and I'm not, I'm not knocking social media when I say this. So, but it's going to sound that way is that a lot of the stuff on social media is misinformation or to some extent, the blind leading the blind where, you know, where I, I've encountered some people on social media, you know, with very, very, with big followings and, and completely misinformed opinions that they spread loudly. Um, and that it's very difficult to counter that. Um, and I got to admit, I'm not, you know, I'm not necessarily the best messenger for that because I think the people who need the education most, unfortunately, are, are the people who are least likely to listen to the people who, who, who spend a lot of time offering it. Um, and so I, I'm completely open to new ideas to reach the newer investors or, or the older investors um, who want to learn about, uh, who want to learn about markets and new financial instruments. Yeah, it's a great point. I mean, uh, if you go onto financial Twitter, it's just a real uh, cornucopia of, of, I mean, a lot of great stuff, but there's a lot of shady stuff out there too. Um, um, you know, I think, you know, one sort of theme we've kind of been circling around a lot is this idea of, you know, what, what is the line between day trading, speculation, investing? Um, I think, you know, one, one thing that speaks to the capacity for investor education is the rise of index funds. Uh, investors were kind of educated into the benefits of that kind of diversification. Um, but there's a, there, there's a feeling out there that unless you're doing that sort of investing, the rest is speculation or, or dangerous day trading. Um, Mike, do you have any thoughts on, on those um, sort of uh, those boundaries? Are they, should they be as kind of um, bright lines as maybe some people would would have it 
I mean, I think Jill said it right. It's it's more of a spectrum on there, right? And she said that people sort of go back and forth over time, right? And and I think another important point to make is that at any given time, um, you know, investors may be doing both, right? So you know, there's this notion that the so-called you know Robinhood traders are putting all their money on their Robinhood app and 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 doing all that day trading that's going on, right? When in reality. What many people are doing is they have money put away in nice, boring, low-cost index funds, which are a great way to you know get rich slowly um, and, and great diversification, low cost, all that sort of thing. Um, and you know, and then maybe they put a little bit of money into a brokerage account and try to generate a little bit of alpha on that sense, right? And so, um, you know, it's important to know that you know it's it's not like all investors are doing you know one or the other, right? It's it's a lot of people are sort of you know, doing a mix. And then, you know, and then in between there's, you know, there's actively managed uh, index funds or, or actively managed funds, right? So, you know, some people say, well, I may not be smart enough to to pick some of the winners, but maybe I can find a manager who is, um, and some are good and some are not. Um, and so, you know, we see a mix that's there. And, but the important point is that there, all these choices are available to the investor to make. Um, and the fact that we have all of these choices is a great thing. And the fact that there's competition among the providers of those choices has brought the cost the cost down and that again going back to my original point that's what's brought all the access uh, to the market for the average retail investor jill any, any thoughts on that yeah in a way what mike is talking about is another kind of diversification right um so even if we agree that low-cost index funds are a great tool for investors and a great thing that investors should put most of their money into um, you know, there are downsides to the concentration that we see in some of the sponsors of these low cost index funds. Uh, they're dangerous to the market. Uh, they're dangerous in terms of herd behavior and so forth. Um, they're dangerous in the way those funds can influence businesses. So allowing and encouraging people to invest in stock directly provides some sort of counter to that. Mike also talked about uh, financial advisors, right? P putting your money with a professional money manager. Um, and there are some excellent money managers out there. But, you know, talk about the possibility of fraud, right? There are some, you know, huge scandals um, with money managers who, you know, were, were actually charging a lot of money and not doing what was in the best interests of investors. So in a way, what you're talking about is increasing the options for retail investors with the beneficial um, sort of upside of traditional diversification. And direct stock, stock investing today, with the advent of commission-free trading and fractional shares, allows investors to diversify in a way that, you know, historically has not been possible. So even that strategy has become a lot lower risk than it traditionally was. Great points. I, I just want <clears throat> we, to, we have about 15 minutes left, but if there's any audience to love to hear from you, we have... Um, we have another user on Slido asking, sort of wanting to return to this concept of, of the memes and how regulators should. We had this incident back in January where, you know, shares of, of GameStop and AMC were were halted, um, and I think there's still a lot of confusion out there as to exactly what happened. Um, I, I don't know, Mike, if you can kind of walk us through what you think we learned uh, from that incident. Um, how did regulators respond? Um, how did the financial, uh, how did the market infrastructure respond? And is there anything you think that regulators should be doing differently, say, if something like that happened again? 
Yeah. So with respect to the 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 halting of trading that occurred from some brokers, it was um, because some of them were not going to be able to meet their margin calls with what's called the DTCC, right? So um, one of the things that that came about in the aftermath of that in the hearings that I participated in, a couple of them in the House and the Senate, um, was it the focus on some of the market structure issues or the infrastructure issues, right? So if you buy a stock today, you get today's stock price, but the clearance and settlement doesn't actually occur um, for, um, for two more days. Um, and so there's, in order to mitigate some of the risk that either the shares or the cash won't be delivered, this Wall Street utility called DTCC requires the brokers to post margin on that. Um, and so in the case of the AMC and, and GameStop trading, there was so much trading on one side of the market by um, some of the customers of some of the brokerage firms that there was a huge margin call that they were going to have to make at the DTCC to cover sort of not only the trades that occurred that day, but potential trades in the future. So what some of the brokers did was sort of ratcheted down the ability to trade and, and in some cases actually, you know, halted the trading on that. So so the, the trade and settlement cycle is one thing that the regulators are looking at. Um, yours truly here was the one who moved us from T plus three to T plus two trading. Um, people have talked about, should we go to T plus one or T zero trading? And the technology is there, um, but there's some complications and, and they're going to have to work with some of the other, the banking regulators to make sure the payment systems all work correctly and those sorts of things, but something they definitely want to look at. A couple of the other things that, that came about um, in the aftermath of that trading is um, the, the question of payment for order flow. Um, you know, that's something that the, that the, that the, the SEC has allowed for decades. Um, it's what allows brokers um, to not charge commissions. Um, they can get payments from market makers to direct order flow to them. Uh, it was pointed out quite correctly that there is a conflict of interest there. Uh, and, and the SEC has recognized that. And that's why the SEC enforces what's called its best execution uh, requirements to make sure that they're directing order flow to the, to the market makers who give the best execution, not the ones who just paying them the most amount of money. So those are probably the two biggest areas in terms of on the regulatory, what's, what's happening. Also, potentially um, short selling came into um, into light for many people. Um, there's a lot that can be done to uh, improve the transparency of the securities lending market. So if you short, you have to borrow the shares. Um, but I'll just leave it at there. I mean, I think speaking of investor education, I think more people learned about what the DTCC was than uh, than ever before uh, with that incident. Um, Steve, do you have any thoughts on on the lessons we can draw from that? Well, I was hoping that that Mike would get to the short selling part because I think that was that was a key element to it. Um, you know, an event like that when you when you're forced to really, you know, when there's like a huge systemic issue and you know you have to shed light into a lot of the sort of the murkier corners of of, a, of the market's plumbing, you don't always like what you see. And I think a lot of what hinged there was on short selling, um, and and you know, I think there, there's a few things that are really, when you think about it, they're archaic and opaque and needlessly so. Um, you know, do we need, to, does it really require, the, is there really make sense to have short sale figures um, released, you know, every, every two weeks and even then on a lag basis by the major exchanges? Um, there's a huge information dis, disarray in terms of, you know, what the stock loan desks know in terms of the, the real availability of a stock versus, versus not. There's also the issue of uh, rehypothecating shares, where you know I, I you know um, if if Jill borrows shares from me um, and then sells them, you know to Mike, he doesn't no idea that that he bought borrowed shares, and and depending on how the shorts are borrowed, 
you end up you end up with the GameStop situation, which proved to be explosive, where you had a short interest greater than 100 percent, and it was legal. It, it, it's it's out. It, I wrote about this. It, it's bizarre, but it's le- but it's it's legal, and and it can happen. So there's various ways you could do it. Do you do you make the process less opaque? Do you um, report do you report short sales? I, I don't know why you couldn't even do it daily. Um, short interest. Um, there, there's. Uh, do you have sort of penalties like like um, DTC almost imposed uh, penalty? You know, sort of a penalty rate imposed by the by the by the clearinghouse rather than individually by brokers in terms of hard to borrow shares. There's a lot of different ways to go there, but um, what we're finding, and this is still an issue because we are still seeing a lot of social media focused on finding where the short sales are, um, and 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 you know, trying to trying to goose up those shares. Again, it, if you're a short seller, and most short sellers are professionals, they they're big boys. They know this can happen to them. And I, you know, I don't really. I, I, there have been people preying on shorts for as long as there have been shorts. But I do think that there's a lot of um, there's a lot of help that we that they can do in terms of a regular in, in terms of adding a lot of um, in terms of reducing the opacity uh, of of that key factor of the market that's really not well understood. Yeah, Mike, I'm, I'm wondering if you if you want to elaborate on that point a little bit. Do you foresee the SEC coming out with some some new rules there, or or is there more studying to be done on on that topic in particular? On short selling. Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, the SEC. So um, the SEC did do a study um, on potentially looking at real time reporting of short sales. Um, it was in Dodd Frank. Um, and they did um, basically an economic analysis looking at um, what would be the costs and benefits of doing that. And so uh, on that, they decided not to move forward. They could always revisit that. Um, I think a more fruitful one is is to look at the actual securities lending market, right? So, um, you know, as Steve said, when you start looking at the plumbing, you, you know, you're not going to like what you see down there. It's it's very arcane. It's very it's very old. It's very opaque. Uh, you know, and he, he gave this those specific, re, you know, the what goes on there, what the SEC could do um, that I think would be very helpful is to add more transparency to that market. Um, and then that would allow them to have data to see what, if any, additional regulatory actions should get made. So first, you know, collect the data, make it trans, make it, make it, you know, get regulatory transparency. So the SEC can see what's going on there um, and see whether or not, you know, many, maybe they say, all right, that's enough. Um, or, and, and, you know, to Steve's point, potentially then use that information to then provide additional public transparency so that, in, you know, the investors can have, um, uh, make better decisions on that. So I think that's, those are probably what the SEC is going to be looking at in, in this area. Interesting. Julia, any, any thoughts on the short selling topic? Yeah, so two quick points. Um, first, uh, we talked a little earlier about market volatility. And um, the sort of heavy short uh, selling is a key factor there. Um, hang on a second. I just, there. Um, so, you know, GameStop had an extraordinary level of short selling. And that's one of the reasons that retail investors were able to have the price impact that they did. Um, that's not true of most stocks. So we talk about, well, retail investors are going to increase market volatility. You really need special conditions, at least to have a GameStop type situation. The other thing to keep in mind, and this is completely off topic, um, is we talked about conflicts of interest. 
The share lending market is another way that brokers and asset managers can make money. So everybody's been talking about payment for order flow and the potential conflict of interest. You don't have to accept payment for order flow if you are a big share lender. If you lend your customer shares or you lend the shares in your mutual fund that are actually you know owned by the beneficial owners so um you know it's kind of interesting to uh sort of compare you know is one a more problematic way of funding these kind of services than the other because at the end of the day right there's no such thing as a free lunch if people want to have trades executed if people want to have brokerage accounts there has to be some way of subsidizing that activity Right, right. Well, we're we're running out of time here, about four minutes left. So let's go around the horn and I'll ask um, Steve, why don't you start and, and sort of give us your closing thoughts here? Well, first of all, I, I'm, I'm, I'm pleased and honored to have been part of this panel. I, I've learned a lot just from the discussion and, and participating in it and listening to my to my fellow uh, panelists. Um, you know, I think what we come back to is there's always room for improvement in so many areas in the market. Um, it, Markets are, are an unfinished product, um, and we're always going to be trying to perfect uh, perfect the regulation and the education and the functioning of them. Um, and you know, I think I think it's it's discussions like this that help us focus focus on that stuff. Um, and but again, I think um, it, it's it's one of these mixed blessings. Is I think it's very important. It, markets will not function without proper regulation. Um, and, and then the question is, and I, you know, I'll leave it for the people who, who write the laws and, and, and opine on them more, more cogently than I do, but it's finding the place where you, the sweet spot, where you have enough regulation to make sure they work well, uh, but not so much that you stifle them. And uh, I, I, I'm, part, I'm glad to be part of that discussion. Great. Mike, do you have uh, uh, some closing thoughts? Sure, just uh, on the regulatory side, right? So the SEC has a three-part mission, right? To protect investors, maintain fair, orderly, and efficient markets, and facilitate capital formation. And, and oftentimes people forget about that third part of the mission um, and the fact that there are trade-offs there. You know, to Steve's point, you got to find that sweet spot. When the SEC is at its best is when it balances all three parts of those missions, right? We need to remember that, you know, yes, we need to you know, protect investors from fraud, you know, outright fraud, those types of things. But we can't go so the pendulum can't go so far that we restrict access, um, particularly for underserved, you know, younger people, more diverse people that Joe was saying are coming into the market. So the SEC needs to keep that uh, in balance. And, you know, for for an administration that's really concerned about sort of equity issues in the social realm, right? What is more equitable access? What provides more equitable access to the markets than zero commission trading? So um, I think we're, we're, at a, we're at a great point in time. Yeah, there's some things that can be fixed around the edges, but it's important to remember that this is what allows, you know, everyday Americans to invest in the American dream. So that's what we need to keep in mind. That's a great, great point. Uh, Jill, do you have any uh, closing thoughts? I think we may have, may have lost Jill there. Um, well, I guess, you know, we're, we're basically out of time here. I really appreciate um, all of our panelists for sharing their expertise. Um, I know I could continue to talk about this stuff for hours more, but we'll have to wrap it up there. Um, I want to thank the, the panel and, and, and uh, the audience for submitting questions. Um, we're going to take a 15 minute break now. The next session, uh, retail investors and equity investment options will begin at 1.45 p.m. Thanks a lot.